chat systems have been a part of software development for decades. Older systems like Pigeon and Yammer were surpassed by newer systems like HipChat. And when Slack was created, it quickly became a part of most software companies. But Slack does not fulfill the needs of every company. Mattermost is an open-source chat system. Mattermost can be configured to work within enterprises that have strong constraints around compliance and data governance, whereas Slack is a SaaS product that requires users to send their data to the cloud servers managed by Slack, Mattermost allows the enterprise to decide how data moves through services and where the databases are hosted. Ian Tien is the CEO of Mattermost, and he joins the show to talk about why many companies need their chat system to be hosted in a private cloud or on-premises. In a previous episode with CTO Corey Hewlin, we discussed the engineering behind Mattermost. And in today's episode, we explore the management and strategy of the business, as well as some additional engineering, since Ian Tien's background is as a software engineer and computer scientist. Ian Tien, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thanks for having me. Internal chat has been a product that almost every software company has needed for the last 20 years, but it was only around 2014 that the chat products like Slack and Mattermost started to appear in prominence. Why did it take until 2014 for that product category to exist? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. So I think what happened around that that time you described is that you had a generational shift of human beings that were spending a lot of time on Facebook and social media and communicating through digital channels just became a lot more natural. What you saw was a rapid decline in the actual use of email and you know a generation of people that really relied on messaging, especially mobile messaging. And for a lot of millennials today, they think of email as password reset and where I get letters from my parents. So I think that's what's really driven something that has always kind of been there, which is, you know, whether it's IRC or it's been, you know, instant messaging, it's really taken something that has always kind of existed and and been sort of like a secondary system and made the primary just because of how people have been growing up. And that's a one-way door because it's really built on the experience of of another generation of users. HipChat was the first product to market in this category. Why didn't HipChat take the entire market? Having wonderful friends who who worked very, very hard on that product, I would say that... Um, Great product, by yeah. the way. I used <laughs> yeah. it. We did as well. And, you know, it's actually part of the formation story of Mattermost is that we were such heavy HipChat users when it got bought by a larger company and really, you know, took a backseat product wise. Like it was a very noticeable decline in product quality. We would have, we would lose data. It would have bugs. It would have outages. It would be unusable at, at points. And we were so frustrated that we actually tried to leave that product and they wouldn't let us export. Now we had 26 gigs of data and like that they really weren't designed for that because we were a video game company. And when we stopped paying our subscription, they paywalled us for our own information. We couldn't actually access what we put in there. So we didn't think that was the model that we really wanted to engage with. So what we did was we took, you know, some of the software that was in our video games. We were a video game company before that had about 10 million hours of usage and we created um, our own platform to do this messaging. And we open sourced it and that kind of turned its own thing. But I think that HipChat was really popular and was on this, this wonderful track. People didn't understand how powerful it could be with, with integrations and with the right sort of workflows. 
And I think that, you know, what you'll find in this category is it's going to continue to evolve. And there's going to be, you know, many, 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 many products like this out there. The biggest one is Discord, actually, right? And if you look at the number of users on Discord versus Slack, you know, Discord's actually much larger. And they're kind of the same thing, right? Mattermost, Discord, and Slack have, and, and HipChat all have a very similar sort of channel-based user interface. And I think that that system, it's, it's kind of done. Like, there's a way to do it now. And now the qu question is, well, do you want to use a, a closed-source SaaS service or do you want to use an open-source service that you, you know, have access to? And, and where in the market is that going to go? Mm. We think where it's going to go is... Hey, you've got you've got operating systems. They're all open source now. You've got databases. They're all open source now. You've got virtualization infrastructure. They're all the leading ones are open source right now, and we think collaboration is going to go the same way. We interviewed your co-founder Corey, and he, he talked about some of the ways that Uber uses Mattermost, their fork of Mattermost, and that is a, a highly customized implementation of a chat system for their specific workflows. What are the features around a chat system that can be customized for specific workflows? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, if you want to get really specific and technical, it's really like, what do you open up the API level? And with Mattermost, the extreme case is you fork Mattermost and you do these certain things. And over time, you know, we are about how do we architect the system where it's really not necessary to fork, right? Where we've been able to put like our web applications, our desktop applications, how do we separate them modularly? Um, so that's one. Uh, so you can sort of like modify rather than fork. The other one, and you know, like here's you know different mechanisms to do that. There's really allowing the APIs to support what people need. So what people really want in some cases, they want a canvas. They want I want to write arbitrary JavaScript. Well, in a multi-tenant system, the answer is no. But in a single-tenant system where you can have a plugin architecture that says, okay you're going to sign up to do this because you're the admin, you're going to allow this, um, then you can get really, really powerful. Yeah, you can in install buttons and have certain patterns, but if you want to create your own micro application within a custom message type inside of the platform, that's where we think the whole market wants to go, right? And I think that, you know, the more developers we talk to, they're like, okay, what messaging platform are you using? And they always have, I don't like the sound effect. I don't like, you know, the way that it threads messages. I don't like this or the other piece. And what open source is, it's a platform for innovation. It's, it's openness, it's transparency, it's, it's experimentation, it's iteration. And we believe that long term, you know, these challenges and these needs and these sort of like micro markets are really going to be served by an open platform. So... We're talking about APIs. You've got custom message types. You can in, you can input your own sort of JavaScript applications within them. You've got you know bots that can work on the platform with different site types of security and permissions and controls. You've got you know lots of customization you can do with our own app with our own front ends, right? So all the Mattermost experiences, the desktop app, the web app, are going through the same APIs as those APIs are open. So someone can, can fork our front ends and say, I want to do the web app a different way. People can actually build brand new ones. So the great, you know, one of the most popular examples there, like someone's, we've got uh, Matterhorn, which is a terminal client for Mattermost written in Haskell. We've got people have created a pigeon interface, a front end to Mattermost. So, you know, that this is just kind of a couple of pigeon, small that examples. that old chat yeah. client. Yeah, and they's like, hey, we have users that need Pigeon, and you know, like huh. this back archaic back end is going right. to be end of life. Can we use Mattermost as a front end? And someone just, hey, I think you can, and they wrote it and they documented it, and there's install instruction. If you want to web search Mattermost Pigeon, uh, you'll be able to find some one of these sort of extreme cases of, yeah, let's let's customize. You got any more niche 
examples that the main two you just mentioned, the pigeon interface and somebody writing a terminal that you can embed into Mattermost. What else you got? There's hundreds. So you can just go to get, you can go to GitHub and search the word Mattermost and you'll just find all the open source projects, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them uh, doing very different things. Uh, creative, there's this application where someone can feed their cat remotely uh, <laughs> using Mattermost. You'll see a Mattermost hackathon, like we have a hack, Microsoft, micro, uh, Mattermost hackathon running right now. And there's a lot of creativity that comes out of there. Like the last one we ran, you can just search a month or two ago, Mattermost hackathon, just search for those. There's like two hours of demos of just all these creative things people are doing. Hmm. Is open source important to that kind of customizability? Couldn't you just have API hooks or chatbot systems? Open source is, is fundamental to building a developer community that is creative and energized in, in ways that only open source you know, can create that. It's transparency, right? It's like, oh, your API doesn't support that. Too bad. I guess I won't build this thing. But it's transparency, not only code base, saying that like, hey, this is how much code we have to change for that API to do what I need. It's also open source in our ticketing system and our pull requests to say, hey, here's what's coming down the road, right? Like we have people who are like, oh, I can't use Mattermost until this feature's in. We're not going to talk to you guys. And then, you know, out of the blue, they come back. It was like, we saw the ticket we were monitoring being like closed. Therefore, we know that this feature that we've been waiting for forever is going to be like coming in the next like month, in the next release cycle. Right. So then they're, they're that far ahead. That level of transparency is, I think, fundamental to what I think it is. It's table stakes right now to the best developers out there contributing. The market leaders in this category today of enterprise chat, you've got Slack, Mattermost and Microsoft Teams. How does the market segment around these different products? I think there's sort of three segments in enterprise messaging. You've got the first mover, which is going to be Slack. It's sort of the best known. It's, it's got a big brand. You have another category, which is the incumbents. And you have Microsoft Teams, the best known one. There's other sort of legacy communication providers that are sort of throwing, throwing their hat in the ring. The third segment we think about is open source. And, you know, Mattermost is really defining that segment and leading it in a very special way with we've raised $70 million of funding. We're really earning the trust of enterprises. We're building a very large community, over a thousand contributors. And, you know, we're really aligning to the open source DevOps community out there. So, hey, if I want to do collaboration and I believe my enterprise is going to be focused on software innovation as, you know, one of the critical priorities of its strategy, then I want to think about DevOps and open source and how do I make that more real time and have faster cycles. And that messaging platform is, is part of that initiative. From your experience working at Microsoft, you used to work there. What's the core competency that Microsoft can bring to this product category? Is, is there something it's particularly well-equipped to doing to compete? So being ex-Microsoft, our superpower was really pre-integration. So pre-integration is that, hey, I've got, you know, if I need to solve a problem in SharePoint, well, I've got, you know, the SQL server team on the database end. I've got the Windows server team. I've got like, you know, the browser team. If everyone uses, you know, Microsoft browsers in theory. But you have, you have pre-integration and you have a lot of leverage because you have transparency over your entire stack, right? And then you could innovate with the entire stack together. So that's Microsoft's, you know, historical advantage. The disruption that open source can create is very material because it offers the same thing. It offers transparency through the entire stack. And it means that if I want to build something, I can actually go through the entire stack of my platform 
and I can work to align all those together. And the funny thing is, like when you're at Microsoft, it's it's kind of like the same amount of effort. It's not the same, but it's like you've got to go to those other teams. You got to convince SQL Server to do it this way, and you have to have a lot of meetings. And the open source world, it's the same thing. You have to be able to align all these all these pieces together. But when you align things in the open source world, um, you look at cloud native. You look at a lot of the uh, things they're doing at large scale. Um, it's extremely powerful because it changes the whole world. So it's that same concept of you've got stacks and transparency and you want to influence and Microsoft's superpower is that pre-integration and open source, it's the same. The position of Mattermost is not solely around the customizability. There's also the matter of data ownership, similar to the situation that you described with HipChat earlier. And there's the idea that a privacy-conscious organization would want total control of their own data on their own servers. And I recognize that there are companies in the market that have a desire for that. There are companies that want to control all their own data, whether it's data that's part of their application infrastructure or part of their chat communications. But taking a step back, how rational is that? So if we're talking about who to trust with your data, wouldn't an enterprise be better off trusting a large SaaS company or a large cloud provider? Why do these enterprises want to take matters into their own hands? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's not that these enterprises are trusting their data. They're trusting their customers' data. And they're trusting information that really shouldn't be shared publicly. So security vulnerabilities are a great example. So if I'm an enterprise and I have a security vulnerability, right? That's going to affect, you know, you see this all the time. It's going to affect all my products, right? Well, if that security vulnerability got disclosed outside of my company, right? Then I've really put a lot of my customers at risk. So where am I okay sharing that information, right? Now, imagine that, you know, you're, you're trusting a company with your data, right? But if they're in turn trusting other companies, with your data, right? And it sort of passes down the system, then it's the weakest link in the chain. That's the issue. So to have trust, trust is how do I expose myself to vulnerability based on the positive expectations of someone else, right? And when you're a customer and you work with an enterprise, what you say is like, I trust you, right? And here's what, you know, you owe me in terms of that trust. So it's really hard for that company to say, oh, in that contract, you know what, I, I really have these other SaaS providers, and you have to agree to me make it okay for me to use those, those SaaS providers for my stuff. Mm -hmm. And the customer basically says no, right? Because they're an enterprise too. So that's where the rubber hits the road, is that people who take those customer agreements very seriously have to honor that customer's data, right? Or honor the risk that could be created when sort of secrets, when vulnerabilities, when confidential business information gets leaked out. And you'll find with Mattermost, it's a range of those people who you know, really care about those agreements, right? You'll see we've got a, it goes from large financial services institutions to government entities that are you know, tasked with you know, a huge amount of responsibility to actually some of the bodies that are governing these privacy laws, they're using Mattermost. It also goes to animation studios, right? People who have contractual agreements about really critical IP that they're producing, right? Like, you know, animated movie, if like things, spoilers come out, if information comes out and it gets disclosed, there's a tremendous amount of economic loss that, that could happen there. So it's really about other people's secrets. And how do you ensure that you're managing those properly? 
So it's not necessarily about some law or compliance issue. It's more these companies just don't want their data escaping the control of their supply chain, their data supply chain. Yeah. So it's basically, uh, it's, it's, it's both. Um, so there are some, compl- there are some customers that are like, we don't want to use a SaaS service cause it's going to be, it's, it's doesn't fit our compliance schema. Yeah. It's really about like, what you're really doing is you're, you're entering a relationship. I think in the SMB space, you're kind of like, I swipe my credit card. I click the terms of service. I'm done. Right. In the enterprise space, they're like, what is the market cap of that company? Like, show me its balance sheet before I put my date in that thing. Like, you got to prove to me that this is this is real. I, you know what the funny thing is? I think the people that run SaaS services are the ones that trust SaaS services the least. <laughs> because you realize, you know, just, you know, some examples is like, hey, oh, username, password. Like, you'll see these things. And if you've done M&A on, on small SaaS companies, it's like, oh, yes, we have, we salt and we hash the passwords, right? And this company that was, you know, in one acquisition that I've seen, yeah, they salted and hashed the passwords. And then they also stored the passwords in clear text. Just being, just being redundant. Yeah, just no, just 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 in case, right? Like, <laughs> so, and and that's, I mean, people who build these SaaS services, right? It's not by anyone's fault, right? Like, look at what happened to Facebook, right? They just had they had logging, right? They had keystroke logging, right? And whoops, like, guess what? That turns into a clear text password store, right? And it's not by, it's not malicious; it's by accident. Here's the thing with SaaS services, which are really like SaaS services are made by human beings, right? It's like Conway's law, right? Like you're shipping the org structure, and guess what? Human beings are fallible, right? And yeah, SaaS services, there's people behind them. What you're really trusting in a SaaS service is you're just trusting the engineering team that built it. But again, you are trusting an engineering team whose existence is based on their ability to keep things secure. So, I mean, they're as existentially threatened by data risk as you would be if you're a bank and that chooses to run your own chat service, Right. So the difference is with open source, you can see all the way, you can see all the source code. It's like, I'm going to trust the source code, right? Now there's a bunch of people who wrote it, but I'm going to trust the source code and I'm going to trust all the people that have been paid to try and break the source code, right? So, you know, at GitLab, they spent a million dollars on HackerOne, right? Trying to break and find security issues in that, inside the product. And anyone can inspect that source code, right? That source code people trust. How, do, how much trust do we put in a Silicon Valley company? Like the average tenure of a Silicon Valley engineer is what, like two years? So like, you know, by the time they start their job, they're already looking for the next job. And how much data, how much trust are you going to put? I mean, it, it, there's many, many wonderful services, but like, you know, think about from an enterprise point of view, am I going to trust a Silicon Valley company where the engineers are turning over consistently, or am I going to trust an open source project where millions of dollars is being spent and thousands and thousands of eyeballs, just like mine in this enterprise. And you run the system through Black Duck, you run it through a lot of, you know, you check all the libraries, you can do all that, right? In a complete open environment. So the arguments from 20 years ago, right, that honestly, like Microsoft is putting out there, I work there, right? Like you would create this, this marketing collateral and you say like, why Windows Server is much more secure than Linux and, and all these arguments. And today, Azure runs more Linux than it does Windows Server. Right. That said, don't security vulnerabilities usually come from misconfigurations and operator mistakes rather than bugs in the source code? I think that every system has vulnerabilities, right? And it's really about, you know, what sort of combination of those vulnerabilities are open. And it's about what are the paths that you can find into them, 
right? Like we live in a world where, you know, after Meltdown and Spectre, like people don't even want to run their virtual systems on the same chips, right? Like it's really about vulnerabilities and the one, so I'd say that it's really about the vulnerabilities. Uh, yeah, I admit there are definitely security risks to, to both the code and the configuration of your databases or whatever. We've done more shows on Slack than Mattermost. And the thing I remember about Slack is that they had trouble scaling up the application to where they could have a really high number of concurrent users. So there were some hard limitations for some time. Like there were times when you could not have more than 80,000 users in uh, a Slack channel. They eventually overcame that. I'm assuming that you've account- encountered similar bottlenecks to building really, really large chat rooms. I just use that as a, uh, a jumping off point to a conversation about engineering. What are the core engineering challenges to supporting a chat system that has tens of thousands of concurrent users? Oh, that's a great question. Tens of thousands of concurrent users. You'll hit all sorts. You definitely have the scaling issue. You have trade-offs between, hey, there's a really cool feature and, hey, I really want to scale this room. And you'll have to like make choices between, you know, some features have to turn off after a thousand users, right? Like, and then you also want to think about, so there's the sort of the technical scale, right? And then like, hey, you've got a write pump. And one thing that we didn't expect in some of our largest deployments is that when you test the number of messages you can send, people can only type so fast, right? So then you've got one message and it broadcasts to like, you know, tens of thousands of users. That's okay. But we only expect so many. What happens is someone makes a post and it gets people love it and they start doing emoji reactions. And when they do emoji reactions, they go really fast and they go in parallel. And what you actually have is a DDoS attack created by emoji reactions. Oh no. Because you never anticipated that number of, you know, that many of sends that quickly, right? And each one of those sends. So, you know, you batch it, you do, you do, you do, do different things. So then that's the engineering challenges. And then you've got your UX challenges, right? Which is when an app mentions someone with 20,000 people in the room, the list is too long, right? And there's too many identical names, right? How do I handle that? When I've got tens of thousands of people in the system, my sidebar goes nuts because there's too many channels, right? So how do I think about like, you know, there's people that want to push the envelope and they say, hey, I want to be able to group these channels. I want to have these sorted in a certain way. So I think there's sort of next level things when you work in large, large organizations and there's many design choices you want to make. Here's the thing. People want that custom. People want to tailor that experience to what their users need and how their workflows happen. So that, I think, is, is where the market is going. It's really like, hey, I've got the system. It works. But there's all these pain points that come at scale. If you don't set things up correctly, you've got engineers who are constantly pinged by things, right? They're like, oh, my God, there's like tens of thousands of people here. All the people have the same question, and they're going to like swarm this one engineer like with one question, right? Because like, oh, I can really reach that person. And then they just get, they get, get blasted. So I think the categories are, hey, what are the technical challenges? And then what are the UX challenges? Explain how the Mattermost engineering team is structured. The Mattermost engineering team. So first of all, we're wrote first, right? So all different time zones um, all around the world. When possible, we try to group them by time zone. So it just makes you know collaboration a little bit smoother. And then they're going to be sort of functional groups, right? Whether it's on integrations or it's on end users. And there's going to be sort of themes that people work around. And then we've got uh, product managers that help do the planning and the customer research and specifications and, you know, overseeing how, how everything uh, works together. Generally, it's a very similar to like the two pizza teams, sort of a pod structure, but really rolling up to sort of an R&D, R&D leadership. Since Mattermost has to run on-prem, you can't use any off-the-shelf cloud tools. How has that affected the development process for the company? 
uh, when you say we can't use any cloud tools. So, like, for example, a, you can't use, like, EC2 or RDS or Amazon Kinesis or whatever. I, I just Most of the companies that I do interviews with are, like, you know, built entirely on the cloud. So I just thought it'd be an interesting opportunity to talk about how you how you build the infrastructure in a way that is completely open source and, and deployable and scalable. Yeah, that's a great question. So we actually have support for... Uh, AWS, for Aurora, for S3. And we also have support for the open source alternatives like Minio. Um, it doesn't hurt until oh, the S3. Okay. So it's really about being customer centered, right? And then self-hosted. So, you know, there's the word on-prem, but that, you know, in, in how we think about it, it's really self-managed. And if you want to self-manage on AWS, that's self-management as well. And, and people want to do that and they'll contribute code. And we're like, great, it mm. now it runs on S3. So you're more like, Say, okay, you need a relational database here, you need a bucket storage here, you're welcome to use an open source thing or Amazon S3 or whatever. Yeah, you can do, you know, in, the, in, the, in there's sort of like small, and it's really about, it's really about talking to our customers always and saying like, oh, at one, you just want to run this really small, great, you can just put it on a, a put it in a folder on your, on your, on that one node. And it's like, oh, actually you need a, you know, network, you need a, you need a NAS. Okay, great, you have a NAS. Oh, actually you probably need like an S3. Okay, great. Oh, you, you want to write completely on data center? Okay, well, then here's Minio. And, you know, it's, it's about documenting everything and really understanding like, okay, for, these, for this situation, this is what I need and having it available. And that's been a tremendous benefit for a lot of enterprises who say like, you know what? I really want something that's vendor neutral. I really want something that's going to be flexible because every vendor right now, they don't have a cloud strategy. They have a multi-cloud strategy. Right. What's the biggest technical problem that you've solved in the last year? Biggest technical problem we solved in the last year? I don't know, actually. I think that'd be, because I only see the solutions. I don't see how, how deep <laughs> the problems are. I think one of the ones that kind of comes to mind is just mobility, right? And how do you satisfy all these information, all these security requirements around mobile? And, and you do it in a way that's very performant. And it's just sort of like a, a lot of things you got to get right to have mobile to be secure and to be thoughtful and to be usable by the end customer. So that's, I wouldn't say that's fully solved. I think that's definitely a work in progress, but I think we've made probably more progress on enabling enterprises to create, you know, really private mobile experiences that connect with their DevOps infrastructure than anything else we've seen on the market. Has Kubernetes significantly affected how you run Mattermost? Absolutely. You can Google Kubernetes Mattermost and you'll find, you know, our, our Helm charts and how we set things up. And it just makes things a lot simpler. And it's, it's kind of where the market's going. So a few years ago, we were like, oh, my gosh, how do we support like this and this and this and this and Puppet and Chef and this? And, and there's a lot of open source projects out there that, that do support Mattermost there. But now because things are converging a little bit, there's a clear direction and you can do a lot more on when you have clarity on the platform, the direction. We're at GitLab Commit which is the GitLab conference, what's the connection between GitLab and Mattermost? How do you see these products comparing in terms of their customer base and their go-to-market? Yeah, so inside of GitLab, you actually have Mattermost you know, ready to go. So our binary is in there, and if you just search for GitLab Mattermost on the web, you'll find the install instructions. You in say, here's my endpoint, and you say GitLab reconfigure, and boom, you've got Mattermost running. So you know all the core features of Slack, Slack keyboard shortcuts, can work all the GitLab pieces. So I think you know that's one. It's, it's actually in, in one system, it's the same. I think when GitLab talks about concurrent DevOps and the ability to say one app, have one application across the entire DevOps stack, Mattermost really takes that, the power of GitLab and it makes it real time. 
So now I've got this across my mobile devices. I've got aggregated information through the GitLab bot. I've got the ability to go to mobile. I've even got the ability to go to my smartwatch and I can get notifications there. I can reply with a voice to text and it really takes things to the next level. I'd like to get your perspective on going to market. Can you start by just telling me the first significant sale that you had with Mattermost and how the early sales process got defined and how that eventually snowballed into what kind of go-to-market strategy you have today? Yeah, God, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to say this. I would say that we, our first significant sale was for, with a manufacturer in Silicon Valley. And you know, just when we we're starting, we just started our commercial version and, and this manufacturer like, hey, we really want this, but you have to like, we're going to pen test you. So, you know, and they ran it and they had their, their red teams on it and they found seven issues like in a few days and we were ex-Microsoft. So like we fixed, we fixed them pretty quick and they were like, they're shocked because like open source projects don't do that. And we kind of fixed them immediately and they're like, oh, well, okay, well, We'll buy something. And the procurement process was, you know, arduous and long and not great. Uh, I mean, actually, it was, it was supposed to be, but we actually had a champion that, like, you know, pushed us through it. So, you know, we were sort of brand new. We were engineers for Microsoft, not like salespeople. And we were able to kind of take this technology that they really wanted. We were able to add the key enterprise features that they that they needed, which was single sign-on and and, high, and a certain flavor of high availability. And you know, they're willing to very willing to pay for that. And they had and they were sort of accelerating the process and, and, and pushing us along. And what we found is that pattern just kind of repeated itself, right? Like the enterprises come in, they're like, we really like, like they have transparency, like the engineering team see it. It's like, we like what you do, but you know, you got to do this, this list of features. One of the funny ones was like, oh, here's, okay, the security pen, there's pen test things, there's security stuff, there's single sign on. There's like, uh, we need custom emojis. We're like, that's kind of like one of these things, <laughs> one of these things don't fit. And it's like, well, why do you need custom emojis? Right. And they're like, and they're embarrassed to say this, but like when they have a build break, they have a custom emoji with the head of their CEO. That's like, that like, that's the symbol for a build break. Ah. Um, and they just, wanted, they just wanted to carry that on. So yeah, so we added custom emojis and it's actually fascinating. Like we actually now in our, in our CICD instance, we have like 4,000 custom emojis as like the load test and like every day we run them because, you know, talking, going back to scale discussion, this is what enterprises need. And this is what they don't get out of the open source. And it's very sort of like, okay to put in the enterprise version because like anyone who's running it at that scale, obviously, you know, is getting a lot of benefit, obviously is an enterprise and obviously is getting a benefit out of it. So working with enterprises in the early days of our business has really been a partnership. And they see the open source code, they're appreciative of it. They understand, you know, we are a company and we do, you know, have a revenue model. And, you know, what they really give us is, is feedback for where they want the, the product and the platform to go. And then, and we want to be one of their trusted, trusted vendors to, to build in that direction. Do you have a sense for the enterprise sales market in terms of how much it's defined by the top-down versus the bottoms-up sales process, at least in, in this vertical. So when you're selling Mattermost, is it a process of lots of developers within the company saying, we want Mattermost? Or is it somebody, some senior executive that says, we need a chat solution and we're just going to go with the one where we have complete control of our data? Oh, that's a great question. So there's probably two two sort of like categories, right? One is sort of bottoms up where we get developers, you know, interested in us and that leads to like larger deployments and a commercial relationship. 
There's another piece where, you know, they just have a, they have a list of things. They, they, they have a list of requirements and Mattermost happens to fit it and it's unique in the market. And then that typically only comes when there is actually some still internal adoption. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, like what the, what the split is, but I would say that there's both. I would say the majority is definitely um, the bottoms up. So one development team installs Mattermost. They really, you know, love it. Some friends, hey, you know, can I bum a Mattermost team off you? And they're like, fine. And then one day that that initial admin goes in and he's like, what, there's like 50 Mattermost teams here? Like, who are all these people? Like, they're not even, what am I doing? Like, I, I've turned into IT. And that person will go to, to IT and be like, look, this thing needs to be centrally managed, right? There's obviously a lot of developers. Like, I don't want to run this thing anymore. I loved it when I started. I, I hooked it up the way I want. Now I need you to run it. And then central IT, you know, looks at it and they're like, okay, well, here's the Mattermost page, you know, what is this Mattermost thing? Here's the pricing page. Oh, okay, obviously the thing that, all the things that IT wants, which is single sign-on, Active Directory integration, e-discovery, that's in the paid version, right? And the developers get all the stuff they want. IT can't, doesn't want to run the open source version because they want their life to be easy. So they buy the commercial version, right? So it's like, it's really easy to manage users that are going to be automatically turned on or turned off based on Active Directory. The single sign-on works. Um, their lives are easy. They have budget. That's that's kind of how the business, like that's the majority of the business is is not really sales led. It's really bottoms up. There's a perspective in the software business that the gigantic companies like AWS and Microsoft and Google and Apple are taking all of the opportunity. Do you feel like these companies are so big in any way that they're inhibiting your ability to build a strong business? Oh, that's a great question. So do the sort of megacorps inhibit like the smaller um, companies? Or you in particular, yeah. this this product category? I think in terms of brand a little bit, but the market is so large, right? Like I think all these large companies, they have, you know, very strong PR teams and, and marketing teams, and they want to create the, the impression that like, yes, like this is this is your only choice because, you know, this is the only thing you've ever heard of. But like the reality is like, Salesforce, which is like a giant, right? It's like CRM, it only owns like 40% of the market, right? Which is shocking. Like what? Salesforce is only 40% of the market. And you'll see that with like, you know, Starbucks, right? Like that's not, when you look at the, the whole coffee market, it's not actually that big. I think that there's a ton of opportunity. And I think the thing with technology is that it's always changing, right? Like the, the, the winners in the last 20 years, in the last 10 years, the last five years, it just constantly shifts and things can change so fast. But I think the arc of software is long, but it bends towards open source. How do you size the market? Like, are there really that many enterprises that don't even have a chat solution yet? Yeah, I think if you look at, I mean, if you look at Slack's S1, and they size the market about $30 billion. And we look at the analyst coverage, you know, the market, you know, it's, it's around that ballpark. And what it is, is, well, what's the fundamental platform for people where people are going to collaborate and they're going to build things together. Mm. And it's really a massive market. You look at unified communications is what 40 billion. It's growing. That includes voice and video and meeting rooms and things like that. But ultimately the way that we collaborate is changing, right? Most people email is like, it's not the primary medium for, for a lot of people. What they need is sort of three things. They need voice video screen share. They need messaging and they need documents. Right. And they spend most of their lives in, in those, you know, especially internally in those sort of three things. So what do those things look like in future? I'll just say one more thing about where I think the big companies are going. Microsoft is pushing a lot of people to Office 365, right? And people are leaving their, you know, self-hosted exchange deployments and everything's going to cloud. The thing to watch out for in the next three to five years as all these enterprises go to cloud is how many of them, now that they're comfortable with cloud, will start going to G Suite. 
And the reason why they're going to start considering G Suite is because G Suite owns the um, earlier generation, right? Like people don't use like Outlook.com for personal email anymore. They all use Gmail. So when they have that experience and they have Google Docs going to school and in their personal lives, it's going to be a lot easier to become a G Suite user when you go in the workforce. Because if you haven't had the Office 365 experience earlier on, and I know this because I worked at Microsoft and you know, I was the head of Hotmail and Outlook.com and it was, it was really hard back then because Gmail was so powerful and it was really changing things. So that's just one example of how the collaboration market is, has noticeably changed is that Office is no longer the you know, familiar, easy to use thing. It's just like, wait, I'm going to use my, this Microsoft Office thing. I use Google Spreadsheets. I use Google Docs. I use Google everything. And how does this Office thing work? And that's like shocking to, shocking to a lot of people, but it's true. And how, how do you think that applies to your business? I think that change in behavior and that change in terms of market is it's just one example of how much change is going to happen. Understood. The world has obviously moved in the direction of enterprise chat, but we haven't had any successful enterprise social networking. Why hasn't there been a successful enterprise social networking tool? So I guess the question is like, should there be an enterpri- a successful enterprise social networking tool? Like, like what's, what's the need that it solves? I have no idea. Okay. That's newsfeed. <laughs> Do you want a newsfeed for your organization? I haven't seen a product that's got that right yet. But do I want it? Like, should I have it? Should I log in and have a digest of the company events today? I think that's a need. I don't know if like technology is the best way to solve that versus, you know, an announcement versus leadership and like the comp- leadership of company being able to like articulate what is, you know, really important, whether it's financial plans or launch plans or, you know, what the R&D inject- initiatives are. That seems like a, a human form of communication to me. Since we're at GitLab Commit, GitLab is all about this rapid product expansion. They're doing a million things. Pretty interesting. You know the chronology of of different software companies. I can't think of another company that has expanded in the way that GitLab is doing. If you were to think about the GitLab product development philosophy, if you applied that to your own company to matter most, what would that look like? What would be the best adjacencies to expand into? I think incident response is something that we released in alpha uh, a few months ago. And I would think it slightly differently, like iteration is super important, but it's not breadth. It's really about what does the customer need and what does the customer want? What are the use cases? What are they doing? What are they adding to Mattermost software that we're not addressing? Like what's this thing, what's the work they have to do? How do we make their lives easier? How do we make their lives more out of the box? Instant response is, is an example of that, which is, you know, customers are building this themselves, right? PagerDuty is a wonderful product. It's a SaaS product, right? And per, per our earlier conversation, when you have information that's not really yours, it's someone else's, you know, there's a lot of PagerDuty customers that actually can't put anything other than a URL in PagerDuty, right? So you get a page and you have like a URL, there's like, there's something here, but they can't tell you what it is because they can't take that information and put in a third-party product. So we have customers that create their own pager duty within Mattermost. So there's an incident, they have automation, and they automatically create a channel. And they mention a certain number of people that need to come to that channel, they add like a bunch of reports. And then from there, they can use that command line to pull in different reports, pull in information, and really sort of like solve the incident. At the end of that, they have a postmortem. They say like, okay, here's what we did, and here's if we did it, like here's where it was really efficient, here's where we kind of got lost, and here's what we can do better. We should probably pre-can some of these reports. We had to run this as a little too manual. And, and they had the postmortem, they write it up. Then they take all of it and they run an export function that throws into a PDF format that puts it into their like InfoSec compliance like system. And they do that custom because we don't we didn't build that out of the box for them. 
right? But they, they want us to build that for them and they'll even like want to buy it from us because it's way easier for us to create it and us to maintain it and us to continually approve it than for them to stitch together, you know, these pieces. So I think that it's really about listening to your customer and iterating and, you know, just being able to deliver what they need and, and have that partnership. So like you solve their problems, they'll, they'll buy and they'll want to buy and they'll want to buy more. The average company that is installing Mattermost and using it at scale, just to, to revisit the customer desire, how does the, when the customers talk about like what they like about Mattermost, is it more about the total control of the data or is it more about the customizability of the tool? Oh, that's a great question. So trust is a constraint. It's not an optimization, right? So people don't want to, if you can trust me like 10 times more, it doesn't really matter. You just want to like trust is Boolean, right? So people want the trust. They want to, they want to have the trust as, as simply as possible, right? Like how can I put collaboration in a high security on-prem environment that has, you know, tons of regulations in the simplest way possible and smoothly as possible? Then the optimization is the workflows. It's like, how many things can I connect to? How much time can you save me? How do I take hours and turn them to seconds? You know, the, the best example is really connecting to legacy applications. So I'm, you know, I'm this company and I'm like, I'm going to cloud. And you're like, well, what do you mean you go to cloud? We're going to put 10% of the company on cloud. It's like, okay, right? It's like, well, how far will you get? It's like, we're going to get to 50%. Well, like, you know, like in like 10 years, I'll get to 50%. And why is that? It's because this app over here that runs on a mainframe has $4 billion of revenue going through it. And no one understands how it's, it's going to work. It's never going to go on cloud. They're going to go on eBay and buy used parts to fix that mainframe, like until the end of time, right? There's not going to be able to make that shift, right? Like no one's career is going to last long, long enough. So you need a way to connect those private networks, and what people are building, they're building like RESTful APIs on these old, you know, COBOL solutions you have to tell that into. And then for Mattermost, you can use this, you can actually connect through the command line, a slash command. You can say like, hey, I want to pull this report. I want to pull this data. And I think that's the way that that is the user interface people want. They want an open source user interface that's really easy, that connects your legacy apps, that supports all their infra security infrastructure. They don't have to trust it because they can read all the source code. And that is like, imagine you're in hell and someone brings you a glass of ice water, right? Like that's what it feels like working in these, these really old, rickety, high security legacy applications. And, you know, how do you make it modernize? And guess what? When you add Mattermost, you can't tell that it's an old legacy app, right? It runs a little slow, right? But like, you can't tell because everything connects sort of in the same way. You pull the same reports, you have the same data. And what you've done is you've modernized. Right. And then with Mattermost, you can actually go to cloud. Right. And you can you can take this you can take this with you. If you aren't building Mattermost today, what company would you be building? Oh, that's a great question. I have no idea. I'm really happy building Mattermost. A gaming company, perhaps? You know, gaming is like when you're a dev, there's two things you want to do. You want to make video games and you want to make open source. So like, I got the video games, you know, checkbox. <laughs> video games is really hard talking to games because like, you know, especially running, it's like you have to work the holidays. It's going to be hundred hour weeks. It's very real time. And like the, uh, the forums aren't really filled with praise if you're into certain types of games. Yeah. It's a hits business, right? It's a hits driven business as well. I learned a lot. Last question. What did you learn from Andy Grove? Oh, Andy. <laughs> I learned a lot. What Andy had was he had immense ability to focus. He had this like just iron will, right? And it was just, it was just amazing. Like when he was focused on something, how clear he could be. And that's something I always like admire and, and aspire to. Okay. Good answer. Ian, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. 